Brethren, I invite you to turn in your copies of the scripture to 2 Samuel chapter 5. As we're progressing through the life of David, we've come to that portion in 2 Samuel chapter 5. I'll be reading the entirety of the chapter, however, our text today will primarily be from verses 1 through verse 10. Hear once again the very words of God. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and spoke, saying, Indeed, we are your bone and your flesh. Also in time past, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out and and brought them in. And the Lord said to you, You shall shepherd my people Israel and be ruler over Israel. Therefore all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, And King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed King David over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judas seven years and six months, and in Jerusalem, he reigned 33 years over all Israel and Judah. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who spoke to David, saying, You shall not come in here, but the blind and the lame will repel you, thinking David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. Now David said on that day, Whoever climbs up by way of the water shaft and defeats the Jebusites, the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul, he shall be chief and captain. Therefore, they say, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. Then David dwelled in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built all around from Milo and inward. So David went on and became great, and the Lord God of hosts was with him. Then Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees and carpenters and masons, and they built David a house. So David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he had come from Hebron. Also more sons and daughters were born to David. Now these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem. Shemua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, Napheg, Japhia, Elishama, Eliada, and Eliphelet. Now when the Philistines heard that they had anointed David king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David, and David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. The Philistines also went and deployed themselves in the valley of Raphim. So David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will doubtless deliver the Philistines into your hand. So David went to Baal-perazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breakthrough of water. Therefore he called the name of the place Baal-perazim. And they left their images there, and David and his men carried them away. Then the Philistines went up once again and deployed themselves in the valley of Raphim. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, and he said, 
You shall not go up, circle around behind them, and come upon them in front of the mulberry trees. And it shall be when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the mulberry trees, then you shall advance quickly. For then the Lord will go out before you to strike the camp of the Philistines. And David did so, as the Lord commanded him, and he drove back the Philistines from Geba as far as Gezer. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for these accounts of David's life that are examples to your people, both of David's faithfulness and his desire to serve you as king and to the desire to serve you well as king over Israel in stark contrast to Saul. And yet, Father, without your spirit illumining our minds and our thoughts, these accounts would seem to be just historical uh, circumstances that have little meaning. But, Father, we know that they are far greater than that. They are your word, and then they have importance, both in our orthodoxy and our orthopraxy. So we pray, Father, that as we read these words, as we study these passages, that you would illumine our minds and hearts with them, that we might be more faithful to you. And we ask this in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. Well, brethren, we are at a passage unlike the previous four chapters in this book. The previous four chapters, David was serving as a king over just a portion of Israel, over Judah, while the 11 other tribes were under the reign of Ishbosheth. There was turmoil within the house of Israel, all of Israel. A civil war has been going on for seven and a half years between Judah and the other 11 tribes. Two uh, staunch warriors uh, uh, were uh, warring against one another. The King, the, uh, king Ishbosheth's uh, uh, chief uh, general, Abner, who died in the previous chapter, as well as Ishbosheth. Uh, against David and his chief general. The focus now changes. Israel has come together, and the focus changes from internal strife in Israel to external enemies against Israel. There's some intrigue that takes place in the capturing of Jerusalem that is not readily evident from our passage here, But the parallel passage found in 1 Chronicles 11, which we'll look at later, gives us a little bit more information that that, uh, uh, tells us about that intrigue. In this passage, we see Hiram, the king of Tyre, making an alliance with David after he has become king over all Israel. And this Phoenician king is uh, at a city, which is a port city in the northern part of Israel, where, uh, where uh, trade from the uh, Mediterranean Sea, from the, the uh, western parts of the Roman Empire, well, not at this time, it's not the Roman Empire, but the western parts of, of, uh, of Europe are coming through Tyre. Uh, caravans would pass from Tyre into, into uh, Jerusalem and, and southern parts of Israel and down into Egypt. And that was the trade, many of the trade routes came through there. So. Uh, Tyre is an important city uh, at this time and throughout uh, the Middle Eastern uh, uh, ages as a port city for trade. 
A bit of history of the lineage of David is recorded from here. Uh, Sons and daughters are mentioned. Two of the lists that I just read, only two of the lists will be mentioned again. And those are the two sons uh, to Bathsheba uh, by David. The Philistines are soundly defeated in this passage, which gives us the title to the sermon, When the Lord Bursts Forth. We're not going to look at that today. We'll be looking at that next week. As I, as I worked on the sermon, I realized it was too much to handle all in one sermon, so I broke it into two. But these, the, these five emphases in this passage, the, the, the tribes of Israel being united, uh, what takes place in the, in the uh, uh, overthrowing of J- uh, Jerusalem, uh, the king of Tyre coming into alliance with David, the lineage of David, which we'll look at next week as well, and the, the Philistines being defeated, these five areas of emphases are important for us to understand in the life of David because they point to many things that happen in the, in the son of David, Jesus Christ, as he comes to the throne at the right hand of the Father. And I'll, I'll pull those, those connections together at, as we deal with each of the points. Today's sermon, though, will be the first two points, the point of Israel being brought together back as one nation under David's reign, and then also the fall of Jerusalem and the capturing of that by David and his men. So let's begin with the uniting of all Israel. Again, in verse 1, Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and spoke, saying, Indeed, we are your bone and your flesh, Also in time past, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out and brought them in. And the Lord said to you, you shall shepherd my people Israel and be ruler over Israel. Therefore all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed King David over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign and reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and in Jerusalem, he reigned 33 years over all Israel and Judah. Brethren, Ishbosheth and Abner are dead, as we saw in the previous chapter. The 11 tribes of Israel are leaderless. Abner had met with the elders of Israel before going to David to sue for peace, you'll recall, and presumably had their concurrence to seek peace under the kingship of David. Remember that that happened before he was murdered. What is not evident from 2 Samuel chapter 5 is the number of warriors from the 11 tribes that have defected already to David during this period of time. Well over 250,000 soldiers from all the tribes of Israel had defected and swelled David's ranks. And we find this in a parallel passage in 1 Chronicles chapter 12. Remember that in the previous chapter in 2 Samuel, David's victories were mounting during the Civil War, while those of Ishbosheth and Abner were diminishing. And so David's hand is being strengthened. Uh, defections from, from Ishbosheth's army have gone to David's army, swelled his ranks, and it's evident to the, to the elders of Israel when Abner goes to them that he's going to sue for peace uh, with David, that they follow along in that effort. 
And interestingly here, the elders of Israel acknowledge David's military acumen. That's the first thing they look at. And even that acumen while he's under Saul's rule. You'll remember that David was a champion against the Philistines, against a giant named Goliath. Children, you remember that account, don't you? Well, uh, it's interesting that he meets uh, later in this chapter, and we'll look at this next week, he, he meets the Philistines at Rephaim, the Valley of Rephaim. Why does that have significance? Well, Rephaim is the land of the giants. So the Philistines, being the giants, the opposition to Israel, are going to be subdued in the land of the giants of all places. And that, we'll look at that significance next week. But here, the Israelite elders acknowledge David's military acumen. But two other things of note we must pay attention of here as we look at this interaction with the elders of Israel, as they're called the people of Israel, and then later the elders of Israel in the same passage. That's, by the way, a Republican form of 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 uh, talking about people. I'll make mention of that here in a m- minute. Uh, but I do want to make, take note of two things that happen in this passage. First, in verse 2, the elders of Israel acknowledge God's blessing upon David to shepherd Israel. They acknowledge probably, they're probably pointing to the anointing that, that David had from Samuel many, many years previously. Probably at this point, uh, ten years previously at least. It's uncertain how, how long ago it has been, but David fled from, from uh, Saul for many years, and then there were seven years of, uh, of uh, uh, rule and David by David uh, just over uh, the tribe of Judah before all of these men have been brought together under one reign of David. So it's been many, many years since David was anointed by, Saul, or by uh, Samuel, and so they are probably acknowledging that in, this, in what they have to say here in this particular verse, in verse 2. And this is a departure from wanting a king like the kings of other nations. Remember they had called out to Samuel in, in uh, 1 Samuel. We want a king like the other nations. And God gave them Saul. David is not like that. David is not a king like the kings of other nations. David is a shepherd king who will shepherd the people of Israel. That's significant because the the circumstance of how he will govern Israel is as a shepherd or as a, in the New Testament, deacon or pastor, one who who pastors the, uh, the people of Israel. Actually, in the New Testament, both terms are used uh, for governing men, pastors in the church, deacons are ministers of the sword in the civil realm. And so those, those titles that we have in the church today that govern us are mimicked here in the Old Testament in one person, the person of David. So he's going to be a different kind of king, a shepherd king. He's not only going to rule over them, but he's going to defend and feed Israel. And we even see that in the next chapter, we'll see how David feeds the people of God. David ende- endeavors to honor God with a heart that pursues God, unlike Saul. Twice here, David solicits God's favor at the end of the chapter. 
is it time for me to go up against the Philistines? How do I do it? And God responds to him. Did Saul do that? Or did Saul just launch out on his own? Or did he go to a medium to ask for that kind of wisdom and not to God himself? You see the difference between the two kings? Very different attitudes. David's compared to Saul. David is going to be this shepherd king, which is an example of Christ as our shepherd king even now. And we'll, I'll speak to that here in a few moments, but that's a, an important aspect of what, what is happening in this, in this passage. David is not just a king like any other king. He is a unique king. And his, the uniqueness of his kingship will be followed by many other kings, including our Savior Jesus. The second item of note in this twofold making, uh, or, or this, uh, the second item that I want to bring to your attention here is the making of a covenant with the elders of Israel. Again, in this first, these first few verses. Therefore, all the elders of Israel, verse 3, came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed King David king over Israel. And David was 30 years old when he began to reign. Brethren, this is important because what's happening here is not only has God anointed David, but now the people are anointing him after making a covenant with David. Now, the the Davidic covenant that happens here is not the same Davidic covenant that's spoken of in a later chapter that God makes with David. And we don't have the terms of this covenant that David makes with the elders. I'm not, I, I, don't, I, I tried to find out if it's still extant someplace, but an example of it exists somewhere. I wasn't able to find it. So I suspect that it doesn't exist any longer. But what's important, maybe not so much the terms of the covenant, but the fact that the king makes a covenant with the people here. And he's making it through their leadership, the elders of Israel. But remember at the first, it says all Israel came to, to anoint David king, and then the elders are here representing the people as the covenant makers with the king, King David. Why do I bring this to our attention? This passage and other similar passages to it form the basis of our own constitutional republic in the United States. The framers of our republic were not oblivious to the fallen nature of an all-powerful ruler who could and likely would devolve into a tyrannical ruler. What could be done to protect the people from this kind of tyrant? Well, the best that could be hoped for was a covenant that both parties affirmed under the judgment of Almighty God. And that is what takes place in this chapter in 2 Samuel. The king, before Almighty God, is making a covenant with his people that they're going to relate to one another in a specific way, David being a shepherd king over Israel, and that's a constitutional uh, circumstance between the two. What we call our constitution is nothing more than a covenant. And here David gives us that example. And it is not lost in history that uh, during our own uh, revolutionary days, uh, the war was called the, the Presbyterian War by the Brits, by the way, because it was a a war that was tied to covenants. Uh, They believed that the covenant 
in the Declaration of Independence, yes, the Declaration of Independence, that the covenant that the king had with the people was broken, and so that a new covenant had to be established, and that's why our Constitution was written. And that all came from someplace. Where where did it originate? Where were the first beginnings of that? We see that here with David and his constitution with the people of Israel. Now, it is unfortunate that the covenant David made with the elders of Israel has not survived. At least I I was unable to find any reference to it. But the concept of the constitutional republic is codified here in the scripture and is the model for our own form of government. Furthermore, because of the early successes of our national constitutional republic, other nations have adopted our system as their own. In fact, most of the nations of the earth have adopted a constitutional republic as their form of government, and its roots are right here in the passage we're in today. Now, we have seen in more recent days persistent violations of our national covenant by our own rulers. Brethren, they violate that covenant at their own peril. God will not be mocked. Our Constitution is not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but it is our national covenant. To swear an oath to God to uphold the Constitution and then to consistently violate its provisions, whether one is a president, a Supreme Court justice, a legislator, or a law enforcement officer, to consistently violate that Constitution is to invite God's wrath. Oh, that we would have rulers who see these violations for what they are and call our nation to repentance in their own repentance. I bring this up, brethren, because we're going to see David breaking covenants with God in the not-too-distant future that will redound to God's judgment both in his house and on Israel itself. God takes covenants very seriously. He establishes them and he keeps them. And he, he sent his son to die on a cross and to give us eternal life that we too might keep, co- keep covenants with him in Christ. And in just a few moments, I'm going to draw together the example that we have here with the New Covenant. Well, I want to turn our attention now to the capturing of Jerusalem. In verses 6 through 10 of our text, we see the fall of Jerusalem into David's hands. And I want to share with you the same account of this circumstance from a parallel passage, 1 Chronicles chapter 11, as it contains some facts that are very important to David's reign but are not contained in the second Samuel passage. So if you would, turn with me to 1 Chronicles chapter 11, and we're going to read the short account of the fall of Jerusalem into the David's hands from that passage. 1 Chronicles chapter 11, beginning in verse 4. And David and all Israel went to Jerusalem, that is Jebus, where the Jebusites were, the inhabitants of the land. The Jebusite, or the inhabitants of Jebus, said to David, You will not come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. David said, Whoever strikes the Jebusites first shall be chief and commander. And Joab, the son of Zeruiah, went up first, so he became the chief. And David lived in the stronghold. 
Therefore it was called the city of David. And he built the city all around from the, from the Millo in complete circuit. And Joab repaired the rest of the city. And David became greater and greater, for the Lord of the hosts was with him. Brethren, we see from this parallel passage in 1 Chronicles 13 that Joab was the man who went up the well that is described in 2 Samuel chapter 5. The first man up the well to fight to overthrow the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is on a hill. And at the top of this hill is a, is a city ringed with a wall. And there, there was no easy way to breach the wall and to take the city of Jerusalem. And so the Jebusites, thinking they were impregnable in, in the walled city of Jerusalem, they taunt David and his men in 2 Samuel chapter 5, saying, uh, lame and, and blind men could turn away your armies from this city. It is so stout. It is so strong. It is impregnable that even cripples could turn away an army, the armies of David. They're taunting David that way. I'm going to come back to that in a minute. Well, one thing that the city of Jerusalem had, which other cities, uh, walled cities, typically did not have, was a source of water that could be uh, accessed even though the city was under siege. And it was a well, 50 feet deep, that went outside the walled city apparently and the water could be gathered there and taken back up into the city and so the city could could last quite long under siege without any difficulty of being uh, kept from a water supply. David says if one of you men, one of my men goes up that well and begins to fight and to overthrow the Jebusites he will become, David makes this oath, he will become the chief of my armies. And Joab, remember Joab, the one who killed Abner, who David had cursed, he and his house, is the one who goes up the well. Brother, similar to Saul making a, a, uh, a promise like that, which would redound to his detriment, David does the same thing here. We have several accounts in all of the scriptures where men have made promises like that that redound to their detriment, hasty promises like that, out of the spur of the moment. And this is one that will, will uh, come back to haunt David, in, as we'll see in the weeks ahead. Joab is now once again confirmed as the head of the army. R- remember I said that many had, had uh, fled Ishbosheth's army, over 250,000 men, including, uh, when you go back to that passage in Chronicles, a listing of all of the the uh, captains and, and leaders of the army that had fled to join David. They were all now part of David's army, and it still re- apparently remained. Who is going to lead this new army? Would it be Joab or somebody from uh, Ishbosheth's ranks? And because of this rash vow, David would have to affirm Joab in that, in that uh, regard as well. And again, it's going to, to cost David later. But let's go back to the account that we find in 2 Samuel chapter 5 because I want to point out some things here so that we don't make a mistake in in thinking uh, something might be happening here that's not really happening. Uh, Let's begin in verse 6. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who spoke to David, saying, You shall not come in here, 
but the blind and the lame will repel you, thinking David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of God. So again, the men are taunting David and his, his forces. The blind and the lame could hold you people off. You're not going to get in here, and yet he prevails. David and his men prevail. Now David said on that day, whoever climbs up by the way of the water shaft and defeats the Jebusites, the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul, he shall be chief and captain. Therefore they say the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. Interesting that we have this this, uh, statement, the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. And we see that in verse 8. Does that mean David hates blind and lame people? Well, no. We, we can't jump to that conclusion. What it does mean is that he hates those who are taunting him, saying those things from the walls of Jerusalem. It's the Jebusites that he hates. They are the ones, now he's assuming, okay, if the lame and the blind are going to keep us from overtaking Jerusalem, then it must be all the armies of the Jebusites that are the lame and the blind. It is they who David hates here. And so David says, the lame and the blind shall not come into the house. Or, excuse me, uh, the Jebusites therefore say that the, uh, uh, David says, I'm sorry, that the lame and the blind shall not come into the house. Why is this important? Well, in a few chapters, in chapter 9, Mephibosheth, we, we met Mephibosheth last week, uh, Saul's grandson, Jonathan's son, who's lame in the, in the feet, Remember, uh, he couldn't walk. He is going to come into David's house and be an important part of David's household in just a few chapters. And so it's not that David has anything against cripples here. We don't want to jump to that conclusion. It is David is despising what the Jebusites are taunting him with, he and his men. David takes the city of Jerusalem. The name Jerusalem means city of peace. And this becomes the city of David. The city of peace. And now I want us to draw the connections to the shepherd king Jesus who lives in the lineage of David and both his titles as well as his governing of the church by way of covenant as David governed all Israel and how that, how that impacts us today. These pictures of what happens here are pointing to something that's going to be far more significant a thousand years later, approximately a thousand years later. David is a covenantal king and he's a shepherd king unlike Saul, who was a king like the other nations. David is going to set up his king, kingly reign in the city of Jerusalem, the city of peace. And what is Jesus' title in Isaiah chapter 9? Is it not Prince of Peace? And Zion, as it's called here, that where Jerusalem will uh, be the, the place where David reigns from, 
is akin to the Zion, the place spoken of in Revelation, where Jesus Christ sits on the throne at the Father's right hand until his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. The connections, the picture, the pointing to of our Savior Jesus Christ is evident here. And as we get to the end of the chapter next week, we're going to see that the Lord bursts forth in triumph over his enemies and how the Spirit directs that work. All of this is contained in this chapter. And yet as we look through this chapter and read through it, we're not always these things are not always evident to us. What is our application for today? Remember what David's gone through all of these many years? He was anointed king many years before, but only now is, he, is it coming to fruition. He's going to reign for a generation, for 40 years, seven and a half years in Judah, which have already passed, and then another 33 years over all Israel from Jerusalem. A whole generation will live under the king named David, who was a shepherd king, not a perfect king, as we'll see, but a shepherd king. Brethren, that's an example of what Jesus is doing for us. He has become the shepherd king. He was anointed at his baptism. Did not the Father say at his baptism, This is my son in whom, my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased? And he received the anointing of baptism. Did Jesus need to receive that anointing because of his own sin? Did he need to be cleansed from sin? No. He's receiving the covenant sign of the people of God in the new covenant. He's the first fruits of that covenant sign. And we have been baptized in him, in that sign. That covenant began at his anointing when the Holy Spirit descended upon him. And our covenant begins at our anointing when the Holy Spirit descends upon us in the name of Jesus Christ and because of his death, burial, and resurrection, which he endured for us. Brethren, we are part of a covenanted people. And just as David was the king of that covenanted people and was victorious, as we shall see in the weeks ahead, in so many ways, Jesus Christ is gaining the victories for us as well. And that blessing is ours to have. If you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that blessing is for you as well. If you've never trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior and Shepherd King, those blessings don't flow to you. They flow to Him and then to us through Him. In the days ahead, as Ken mentioned at the conference that we're going to have, we're going to talk about the days in which we live and how we are to endure difficult times. David did that for many, many years, trusting in God. And we, like him, are to do the same. Jesus, for three and a half years, as he ministered on this earth, following his anointing, 
was despised, despised by men, yea, even rejected by his own people, yet endured the cross that we might become justified in him. It is for us to follow in those steps, to live sacrificially in the days in which we live, that not only our covenant children, but the whole kingdom of God might see the grace of the Holy Spirit lived out in the people of God and turn from wickedness to the light, Jesus Christ, the shepherd king for today's church. Let us pray together.